want to thank Fred and Ruth and all of those who uh, prepare the music for our worship service and how often um, it's just so evident as I listen to the words of the song and how they're songs and how they're woven together, it's evident that there's been a lot of meditation in the text uh, for that morning um, because it, it just ministers to my own heart as I think about the themes that we'll be talking about this morning. And um, I trust as we go through uh, the Word this morning that you'll um, sense the connection there's been between the truth that we've sung and the truth that we will study this morning. We're in 1 John chapter 2, and last week, uh, Brother Ben presented the Apostle John's teaching about the difference that the Father's love at work in us makes in how we approach life. Our desire, because of His love, is to do the will of God, not to pursue the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life. God's love for us has sparked our love for Him and has displaced the, the kind of love that is natural to us as sinners by birth and by choice, a, a love for the world system. That, that world system is in settled opposition to God, for God is the one who interferes with the self-indulgence and self-promotion that drives the culture of the times. And that's true of every generation, including our own. And so, there is this cosmic battle going on that reaches right down into our hearts, because the battle between pleasing God and worldly desires is an internal battle of heart desires. None of us can avoid it. The war for hearts goes on, not just in the community at large, you think about the world out there, but also in the congregation of professing worshipers of Christ. And for that reason, John's command is to believers not to love the world or the things in it, not to get sucked into that kind of world culture that is the selfish desires that drive the anti-God spirit of the age. So most of the time, every congregation like our own is going to be a mixed multitude of genuine born-again believers who are fighting this ongoing battle of heart and those who profess to know Jesus but are still at the heart level pursuing worldly desires. In time, that, that disconnect can't, has to be resolved. It has to, to become clear. Either, either we have to come to a point of bowing the knee, putting our trust in Jesus, um, placing our love and desires on God, or we have to show that our love, our desires are somewhere else. Basically, um, any person ultimately is going to do what he or she most desires at a heart level. And so it's at the heart level that the change has to happen. In time, the true state of a person's heart becomes known. And that reality is what John is going to address next for us in our text this morning. We begin our reading in verse 18 of 1 John 2. We'll read down to verse 23. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. 
Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you, have, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Well, we want to understand this text and how it applies, and in doing so, we'll discover in verses 18 to 19 that John talks about the era of Antichrist. That era is the era that we are living in right now, the era of Antichrist. In verses 20 and 21, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Here is, here is the key to our survival, our ability to stand up against the spirit of the age, this age of Antichrist. And then finally, verses 22 and 23, John articulates the lies against Jesus. And so as we look at these themes I think we'll begin to understand what John is actually saying here. So first, let's consider what John teaches on the era of Antichrist. There's a lot of information uh, in this section, verses 18 and 19, that we're going to have to uh, unpack so that we can understand. Notice how he begins. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour hour. We don't want to skip over the fact that once again, John calls his readers children. It expresses his tender affection for his readers and his sense of responsibility, like a parent for a child, of teaching them and caring for them as those that are growing in Christ. And he talks to the whole congregation this way. All of us are growing. All of us uh, have maturity that we need to reach. All of us need to be instructed. We are children of God. Uh, we are children in our understanding, and we, we need to learn more. He says it is the last hour. Now, just the fact that he would use that kind of terminology teaches us that, that history is not an endless cycle of events, but rather it is moving toward God's determined goal for it. There's a plan. There's a purpose for it. God rules history. God demonstrates that by foretelling what will happen. That's one of the reasons for prophecy in Old and New Testament is for us to know that God rules over history before it's even happened. And there's also what comes through in these prophetic scriptures is an urgency for the believer to live in light of history's destiny. We, you know, it's natural for us to settle down, to put down roots, to get used to the way life is right now, and, and to kind of become complacent about our dedication to the Lord and the urgency there is of whatever we're going to do for God. We, we need to do it now and not wait till you know, someday. I think when we're young, we're tempted to go, well, you know, when I grow up, then I'll get serious about God. Well, you, first off, you don't know you're going to grow up, okay? You don't know that you've even got another day. 
And, and then by the time you get old, you don't know if you're going to even feel like it anymore, okay? So the time to serve God is now, the last hour gives that sense of, of urgency. Time's about up. But you're thinking, okay, wait a minute. Now, John was writing toward the end of the first century, and now we're at the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, what does he mean by the last hour? Like, did John just make a huge mistake? Or, you know, what's, what's going on there? Well, we need to explore that a little bit. We find frequent reference to the last days. We find it in the Old Testament, prophetic portions like Micah 4 and Joel 2. In fact, Peter on the day of Pentecost will quote Joel and talk about the coming of the Spirit uh, as something that would happen in the last days, as Joel prophesied. You remember that Hebrews began with, with talking about God formerly having uh, given His Word through prophets, and that now in these last days has spoken through His Son. There's also reference to the last times um, in, the, in the New Testament Scriptures, and Peter talks about it in 1 Peter 1, 1 Corinthians 10, when making application of the wilderness wanderings to the current times, uh, the, the apostles will talk about the last times. In the last days, Paul teaches in 2 Timothy, his last letter, that perilous times would come, and he describes all this self-indulgent, self-centered, uh, harmful kind of way of life toward other people. Uh, Peter, in 2 Peter 3, his last letter, talks about scoffers that will arise in the, in the last times, um, in the last days, who mock uh, Christ coming again. In other words, uh, they'd say, hey, things have just gone on like they've always been. It's always going to, things are just going to rock along like they, they always have. Uh, there's no ending point. And it's really, because history does repeat itself, it's easy for us to say, and one of the tactics we use with not getting alarmed about the, the latest um, news that might inflame our passions and get us all worried is say, oh, you know, you know, if I look back at history, things like this have always happened. And so things are just rocking along. And while it's true that there's a repetition and there's nothing new under the sun, it's not true. It's not true that it will always be this way. There, there actually is an end point. There is a finality that is coming that Christ is going to bring. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul talks about those that will depart from the faith and listen to doctrines of demons during the last days. Um, and, and 1 Peter 1, salvation that's going to be revealed in the last time. And now we're talking about the, the fulfillment of our salvation that's begun when, when Jesus Christ comes back. And so James talks in James 5 about, um, about the foolishness of laying up treasure, talking to, to wealthy people that have put all their eggs in one basket, that is the basket of the temporal, and, and they're just piling up wealth for themselves. They said, look, woe is coming your way. You're piling this up for the last days. This will be used in judgment against you, that you spent your life just feathering your own nest. You spent all your days just doing what was going to go down the drain, okay? instead of actually investing your life in what would last forever. And then we find that there's a reference to the last days culminating in Christ raising the dead and judging the world. And you find that in John's writings, in John 6, and John 11, John 12, talking about the coming resurrection. So, why am I going through all this? I just want you to understand that this, this term, last, 
has a lot of elasticity. It's, it, it really covers a, a great deal of ground. And, you know, I was reading John Stott made the, made the comment that there are the last days of the last days, and there are the last times of the last times. In other words, when we say last, it's not the, the final last. There, there's more to come, but we are in an era of last days, of last times, and last hour gives us a sense of that urgency. With the coming of Jesus, who is the light of the world, the darkness is passing away. John's already talked about that. And so we live in this present age that's going to usher in the age to come. We're, we're on this transition zone because of Christ's coming. Christ inaugurated that new age to come. He has condemned the present age. It is passing away. From the incarnation then of God the Son, Jesus the Messiah, onward, opposition to Christ as the promised Spirit-anointed Savior, King of the world, reveals the period of history that we are in. We live in an era where rejection of God shows itself most clearly in hostility to Christ. It's an anti-Christian era because it's also a Christian era. It's, it's, it's responding to the Christian era. And as such, John links this anti-Christian spirit of the times to the last hour, okay? So, you could, you could very well say, since John is writing at the end of the first century, that, that we're still in that last hour when we look at the whole scope of history. We are in that transition zone where Christ has come, the gospel is being preached, there's opposition against that gospel, there's opposition against Christ, um, and and that is going to come to an end. That opposition will not prevail. That, that war will end in peace because Christ will win the victory. Now, he says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So, wait a minute, where did you hear that? This is the first time John's brought it up in in this particular letter, and we might ask the question, where have these people heard that Antichrist is coming? And the fact is, when you look at the Scriptures, John is the only one who uses this precise term. But we find the concept, in other words, this is how he is describing it, Antichrist, we find the concept in both the Old Testament and the New in Mark 13, 14, Jesus refers to the abomination of desolation prophesied by Daniel. That's in Daniel 11 and Daniel 12, and he warns that it's yet to come. So, it wasn't completely fulfilled, as some think, with Antiochus Epiphanes in the, between the Testaments. Jesus warns about false Christs who will come. Paul refers to the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. He describes him in the same way that Daniel described the one who opposes God, exalts himself as God in the temple of God, who's the one that, and that's that abomination of desolation, that um, sacrilege committed against God. Paul further warns that the mystery of lawlessness, so you've got the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, that the mystery, what was once hidden now is revealed, of lawlessness is already at work. 
And then Revelation, John also wrote that book, talks about the beast and the false prophet using language similar to Daniel's kingdom visions in Daniel 7 and 8. You start to see a commonality of terms and concepts of, of this opposition to Christ, um, this actual person who will be the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. The personal Antichrist is prophesied yet to come by, by the apostles, but there are already, and this is John's point, many Antichrists. He said, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, but there are already many Antichrists, okay? They've already come. So what does he say exactly here? As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Now, some teach that, that John is redefining the personal Antichrist to be just the spirit of Antichrist as evidenced by these many Antichrists. In other words, that he's saying, you've heard Antichrist is coming. Okay, Antichrist has already come. He's come in the persons of all, the, all these individuals. It's possible maybe to go there. More likely, however, John is making the point that the personal Antichrist will be the culmination of the spirit of Antichrist that we see throughout these last days in the lives of many, many Antichrists. And I say that because it's clear from what we're going to study this morning that this, this anti-Christian spirit, these people that could be called Antichrist, are not just world leaders, but they're also individuals who once passed themselves off as members of the body of Christ. But they've defected and they've turned against Him, revealing their true disposition of heart, a heart that is set against the authority of Christ, a heart that's set against the redemption that Christ offers to those who repent from their self-promoting sin and rely on Him as their Lord and Savior. Really, you know, if you want to put it this way, Antichrist is, is that spirit is the quintessential spirit of the world. It, it is worldliness. It is a refusal to acknowledge that Christ is King and Christ is Savior. It is putting myself first. I am my own King. I am master of my faith. That is the spirit of Antichrist. So John says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, that's a sobering reality. When we read the words, they went out from us. There are friends we thought were fellow believers. We thought they were brothers or sisters that were part of the family of God. We can, we, we can, we can remember their names. We see their faces. People of whom we may have fond memories of serving the Lord together. But I would remind you that Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve. Going out from us is not just moving their membership to another local church. I heard of a church once. It might surprise you which church it was, but 
heard of a church once when whatever anybody moved their membership, the pastor would say they went out from us because they were not of us. <laughs> okay, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about the turf, turf wars between local churches. Okay. Rather, what's going on here is leaving the universal church, abandoning the faith, leaving the company of those who believe. It is a rejection of Christ and the gospel, and therefore, a disdain for Christ and his people. And I would just like to make one kind of side application on this, because we're, we're in such a... Um, share what I'm thinking age to the whole world. It's one thing to critique the foibles and flaws of a particular Christian group. I, I would question, by, by the way, the wisdom of that. That's, that's not the Matthew 18 process. If you actually know a person well enough to know what their foibles and sins are, then you owe it to them to talk directly with them. And if you don't know them that well, maybe then you should zip it. It's one thing to critique the foibles and flaws of a particular Christian group, but we have to be very careful where that goes. Holding gospel-believing Christians up for ridicule borders on attacking the gospel itself and dishonoring Christ. It's not to say that they don't have flaws. True believers are members of the body of of Christ. They are brothers and sisters in the household of faith. And truly born-again people find from the Spirit of God a loving disposition in their hearts toward other believers, a, a reticence to, to display their dirty laundry, a, a reluctance to trash them particularly before unbelievers. If they slip into joining the accuser of the brethren, I think all of us at times do, our conscience cries out. We have to repent of it because we realize that we are actually doing the devil's work who is the accuser of the brethren and the enemy of God and of Christ. So this distancing ourselves from the people of God um, it's dangerous, it's dangerous path. They went out from us because they were not of us. John Sott explained it this way. They shared our earthly company, but not our heavenly birth. They were not regenerate. They were not born again. God's spiritual DNA was not in them. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So we want to be careful about saying, oh, yeah, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, but I just don't like Christians. You know, I don't like hanging around them. Like, huh? Like, how, how is it if you're born of God, you don't like the others that are also born of God? And this is part of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Mark 13, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this is a context of, of people hating you for Christ's sake. It's not because salvation is the reward of endurance, but because endurance is the hallmark of the saved. We're going to talk next week about staying power, that word abide. And God's the one that gives that to us. 
One of the most obvious ways unregenerate persons expose their true identity is to pull away from the company of believers. They feel out of place precisely because they are. We are united by the indwelling Spirit of God, and His work in us gives us a sense of God's love for us and gives us a love for others who've been born into the family. This is what the Spirit of God works in us, in genuine believers. Where you see division and hatred and where you see this uh, pushing away, there, there can be temporary causes of that, but if you see this as a prevailing way of life, then there's something wrong at the heart level. There's something wrong in terms of whether a person actually belongs to God. A believer who's allowed sin to remain unchecked in his life experiences the same symptom of alienation from other believers. You know, one of the best ways I know I'm not right with God is with I'm, when I'm sideways with other people. Because when, I, when I'm right with God, then I, I find a platform, a, a bridge to be able to get along with others. But a true believer can't stay that way. He has to come back because of who he is. He can't stay away. This is the difference between a Judas who betrayed the Lord and a Peter who in the same period of time denied him. Judas never came back, and Peter did. Judas suffered regret and killed himself. Peter suffered regret and repented, rejoining the Christ followers. Jesus had predicted this is what was going to happen in Luke 22. He says, Simon, Simon, talking to Peter, Satan Behold, you know, look, attention, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. In other words, that he would prove that you're a fraud, like you're, you're taking wheat and you're getting rid of the husk, you're, you're winnowing the wheat, uh, keep the wheat, get rid of the chaff. Satan's trying to prove that you're nothing but chaff. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when, not if, you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is the mark, this is the hall, a hallmark of those that actually are for Christ, not against them, those that have the Spirit of God and those that don't. They, they, they have an attraction to be connected to other believers. It grieves us to see professing believers turn away from Jesus, and it can shake us. And, and I know our own congregation has suffered this kind of thing. It, it, it's not a good feeling. But don't let their departure shake you from your faith. It was happening even in the first century. It will continue to happen until Jesus comes. It has less to do with their rejection of Christians than their antagonism against Christ. Christ protects those who love him from those who don't, when those that are actually anti-Christ leave, revealing who they actually are. So rather than letting it shake you, and you know, it ought to grieve you, it ought to, it ought to bring tears, it, it, your heart grieves for those that have turned, and, and you desire for a turning back, but if they will not ever turn back, if they're going to repudiate Christ and his people, then, then realize that, that their leaving 
is, is also for your benefit. God is protecting you. God is exposing what's going at the heart level. I mean, you can't tell. Most of the time, you can't tell which side anybody's on just in a service like this. You know, you, you just can't always tell. There's, there's so much that looks alike. And it's over the course of time that it becomes evident. So as we think about this first section, and this is where we spent, has been the most to explain, I want you to, in terms of application, think about these truths. We've looked at the fact that he calls us the last hours. Think about the urgency of your life right now, the urgency of serving Jesus. Don't, Don't wait another day to come to him if you're not a believer, to trust in him. If you are a believer, don't wait another day to be serving him. This, we have today and that's it. We don't know what another day is going to bring. And, and history is rushing toward a, a God-determined destiny. And therefore, I want to live my life in light of that destiny that history has, this urgency. I want to keep that in mind every day. This is the, Lord, the, the day the Lord's made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. I'm going to do His work today. Also, I want to keep in mind that, that I live in an era of opposition to Jesus. That, that's a reality. I, you know, even, even in a town like Greenville, with all its churches and, and all its history of tradition of, of worshiping Jesus and and, and I think Mike Cruz was telling us the other day, it's the number one friendliest city in America, according to a recent publication. Even a friendly place like Greenville, even there, don't be surprised to find opposition to Christ and to Christians. Okay? That's going to be a reality. Don't let it shake you. And then we also take away from this the importance of our Christian community. Remember that that Jesus prayed that the way we would prove to the world that God had sent Christ and that God loved us just as he loved Christ is the loving unity that there would be among believers. And, and, and so there may be reasons, for instance, that you, you have to move your membership from here, like moving to Arizona there may be other reasons that it, it seems the right thing, but don't disengage from the people of God. Guard your soul and, and take seriously in your heart what's going on if you don't want to be around other believers at all. It may be that the believers you knew were just jerks and, and you didn't know any really godly people. Not likely. It, it may be that there's something else that's broken that, that needs to be dealt with, but you and I need Christian community. And this raises a question then for us. When we think about Satan, when we think about the Antichrist, when we read the abomination of desolation, we think about world powers, we, all of that's kind of overwhelming. Like, how in the world can little old me stand up against that level of evil? that's willing to take on God himself, that hates Jesus? How, how can we even hope to take it on? How, how can believers in Ukraine hope to stand up? How can those that, that are suffering in, in prison camps in China, how can, they, how can they hope 
to stand against the anti-Christian spirit of the age. Well, that's why we need verses 20 and 21. But you, in contrast to this departure, in opposition to the opposition, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Notice John's stress on true knowledge versus the kind of so-called knowledge that the Gnostics, they called themselves that because they were the knowing ones. We're the knowing ones. We're the ones in the know. We might, you know, the know-it-alls, the Gnostics, who they they claimed superiority over simple-minded Christians. And that's still the world's tactic. You find a disdain, an intimidation, a a redefining of terms of reality, and a looking down on those that just hold to the simple, straightforward promises of God. Well, I would remind you that a lie is not sophisticated or superior. It's just a lie. The opposite of truth, and therefore the opposite of true knowledge. If a person claiming to be knowledgeable is promoting a lie, it's not because he's knowledgeable. He's just a liar. It's contrary to the truth. So don't let the avalanche of lies intimidate you into thinking that's somehow sophisticated and don't give in to it. We don't don't need the approval of liars. Christ, or Messiah, the Old Testament terms, means the anointed one. Prophets and kings and priests were anointed uh, with oil. It was to be symbolic of their being enabled by the Spirit to do their job. Christ is anointed with the Holy Spirit without measure, because a member of the Trinity. And Christ Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to those who believe in Him. Listen to what John says in John 7. Whoever believes in me, Jesus is talking, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Paul talks about the Spirit in Romans 8 quite a bit. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. He's taken up residence there. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. In other words, if you belong to Jesus, you have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Jesus. In order for me to have the Spirit of God at work in me, I have to belong to Jesus. I have to be trusting in Jesus. John 15, but when the Helper comes, talking about the coming Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So there's a relationship between what we believe about Jesus and the work of the Spirit. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is what convinces the believer that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus is this promised Messiah. Matthew 16, you remember that great scene there in Caesarea Philippi. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, this is about six months before his crucifixion, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? His favorite term for himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, happy are you, Simon, Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonas, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, look, the reason you believe this is because God is at work in you. God has given you this knowledge. John says it this way, you have an anointing. You have an anointing from the Holy One. Look, if you truly believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he is the promised Messiah, the King of the ages, the the Savior King will set all things right, the reason you believe that is because God is at work in you. God has done a work in you. You have life from God. What separates those who follow the teaching of Antichrist and those who follow the teaching of Christ is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that convinces us this is true. And what we're going to learn in the next verses is that if the spirit you're listening to does not honor Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's a lying spirit, not the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit indwells every genuine believer, convincing him or her of the true identity and powerful work of Jesus. Jesus is key to everything. Leave Jesus out and you don't have Christianity. You don't even have God. You just have a satanically inspired man-made religion. You might as well be worshiping a stone. Such fraudulent religion is powerless to save and is at war with the living God. The Spirit of God regenerates us, gives us life from God, seals us as his people, convicts us, assures us that we are children of God, We're told by the apostles to walk in the Spirit, live our daily life in the Spirit. We're sensitive to His leading, to what He says in in the Word. And and it's the opposite of this self-reliant spirit of the age. Self-reliance, no matter how much you study, no matter how hard you work, no matter how gifted you are, is insufficient to fight this battle. You and I can't survive just because we're so smart. And, and, And... you know, I think it's really important for us to understand the reason, the reason we're born again, the reason that we belong to Jesus is not because we are the smartest people in the world or the most powerful or the most gifted. No. It's by the grace of God that we're saved. It's by the work of God in us that we are saved. And, and that work continues in us and And that's what makes us safe. This is, is, look, the best defense you have, the only defense you can have, is that you actually belong to God and the Spirit of God is at work in you and you're, you're living sensitive to that. Don't close your mind and your heart to how the Spirit is leading. Don't shut the book of the Spirit, the Holy Word of God, and and quit listening to what the Word says. You do that and you're cutting yourself off from your strength. To fight this battle, we need the armor of the Lord. To to fight this battle, we need the power of the Spirit. And and so, you know, sometimes we we run into difficulties, uh, particular sins, particular temptations, or or even confusing false doctrine, and we try to fight it just by focusing on that one thing. You can't do it that way. You've got to stay spiritually healthy overall. You you need to be close to, to have the Spirit working in your life all along. You can't just like cherry pick. And you'll find then that you survive these onslaughts of the evil one. Well, very quickly now, let's look at these lies against Jesus. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? 
This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John's going to pick up this theme a little more in 1 John 4. He adds a little bit more that will help us. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So you see a threefold denial. There's a denial that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. There's a denial of the Father and the Son. And there's a denial of the Son. So the test of authenticity here is what a person thinks of the person and work of Jesus. If he denies that Jesus, the historical Jesus, is the promised Messiah, he's a liar. He's an antichrist. He's against Jesus. The Messiah was the promised Savior of the world. The only one that God declared would deliver humanity from sin and death. And so anyone who promotes some other way of finding deliverance is denying the work that Jesus the Messiah alone has accomplished. There is salvation in no other. And when you try to choose something else as being your salvation, your rescue, you are denying that Jesus is the only Savior, that Jesus is the Messiah. If he denies the deity of Jesus as God the Son, he is a liar. Anyone who holds that Jesus is just a good man or just a prophet or a teacher, but not God in the flesh, is denying the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. Now, it may be that the person's never been exposed to what the Scriptures teach. So, so it may be a correction that needs to be made, but A person cannot continue to hold that position without actually setting himself against Christ, the Christ who is. If he denies the divine union of the Father and the Son and the Godhead, he's a liar. The authoritative words Jesus taught and the miraculous works he did were from the Father. He and the Father were one in these activities. So anyone that denies this union of Father and Son or the divine reliability and authority of Christ's teaching, or the genuine reality of his powerful miracles, is denying who Jesus actually is and what Jesus actually did. Sometimes people balk at the authority of the words of Jesus while they claim to be trusting in Jesus. They argue that doctrine doesn't matter, only that you believe in Jesus. What I've noticed over time is not uncommon for such people to end up dropping even Jesus from the equation and to argue that all that matters is that you are seeking your God, seeking God, or just doing your best. They have more confidence in man-made healing therapies and rituals than in the power of Jesus to save people to the uttermost, and they deny his authority to judge. The denial that was rising in popularity that would reach full force in the second century was the Gnostic heresy, the knowing heresy, that God could not, as God, as a divine being, take on human flesh, and that God could not die. So they taught that the Spirit of Christ came on the man Jesus during his ministry and then left him before he died on the cross. There's a Muslim teaching today very similar to this. 
And, and since Islam considers Jesus to be a prophet who did not sin and who did miracles, but denies his deity and denies that he died on the cross for us, what was happening in the first century was this influence of Greek philosophy, Greek dualism, that matter is evil and spirit is good. And that began to creep into the doctrine of Christ and corrupted it. And this is ever what happens. Human philosophy, speculation, mystic ideas become more important than clear scriptural teaching and historical reality established by eyewitness testimony. In order to be considered educated and wise, you're called to give up doctrine, scriptural doctrine, that's now viewed as primitive and unsophisticated. It's important for us to recognize that whatever deviation from the truth about Jesus Christ one's denial takes, he or she is taking on the position of an antichrist, aligned not with God, but with Satan, the enemy of God, because Satan's the one that empowers antichrist. Now, this can happen where you might least expect it. Among those versed in the scriptures and in religious practice, and who give lip service to God. Let me give you an example. Listen to Jesus' words to the Pharisees, whom Jesus identified as of the world and who would die in their sins. John 8. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Earlier, Jesus is taught in John 5, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. No wonder then that John teaches us here that whoever acknowledges the Son also has the Father. So what do we pull from that? Well, the strategic importance of staying Christ-centered and Christ-focused Remembering that he is the hero of the gospel, and without him, there is no good news at all. People need Jesus. They don't need our way of doing things. They need Jesus. And they need him before it's too late. There is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every world dictator Every self-righteous religious person, people who declared that God didn't even exist, will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. It will be too late for them. 
The time to confess Jesus as Lord is now. You have to decide which side you're on. Are you for Christ or are you against him? Are you seeking a savior or do you think you're going to save yourself? Our appeal to you would be, if you're not trusting Jesus yet, what are you waiting for? He gives eternal life. We live in the era of Antichrist. We have an anointing of the Holy Spirit that protects us against the lies, the lies that prevail against Jesus. Don't be shaken. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and I pray that as we have studied through it, you would equip us to be able to serve well in this warring world and to honor Jesus in all we think and say and do. For it's in Christ's name we pray.